Good morning. We are approaching the conclusion of our Lord's earthly life and ministry and of this series. I have again made a little revision in the title as I am always want to do. What Jesus feared. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about Jesus fearing anything? Seems to me that when you read this text, you have to at least entertain the question, if not arrive at the conclusion that there is something that he did greatly fear. And therefore, I have uh, titled this in a secondary way, The Essence of Hell. That's not a perfume, folks. <laughs> That's a description of what we see as we come to our text. Now, I'm sure after 35 years, you probably heard this story once or twice maybe, but when I was in prison ministry, I was scheduled to do an in-prison seminar back on the East Coast at a major security prison. And it was about a week before I was to go when I got a call from the from the prison fellowship coordinator and she thought she needed to give me an update sort of on how things were going. And so she said, um, I think you ought to know that there was a breakout last week and the prisoner killed one of the people in the neighborhood. And so there is a great sense of distress in the community around the prison. And uh, also there was a great uneasiness amongst the prison population, so great that we put them all in lockdown now, that obviously has all kinds of implications for prison seminars. And, and the third was, they think you're black. And uh, actually, I have to tell you, that's the easiest one for me. I have always had, I don't know why, there's always been a, a repertoire with, uh, repertoire, rep, <laughs> rapport with, with uh, the African-American community. And so I don't have any problems with that aspect at all. But it was one of those things where you, you kind of got the feeling like, you know, could anything else go wrong with this? Uh, and I think that's probably the way the disciples were feeling about this moment in time. As we, uh, as we come to our text, you think about Jesus telling them uh, repeatedly that he is going to be rejected, he is going to be handed over, he is going to be put to death, yes, and he will rise from the dead. Then he reveals to them that at the table that one of those of his twelve who is sitting with him, eating bread with him at the table, is going to be the one who is his betrayer and who will hand him over for death. Now, it isn't in our text, but it is in John chapter 13, and it's in the immediate context uh, out of which Peter affirms his faithfulness and loyalty and Jesus can trust in him whether he can trust in any of the others is up for grabs, but Peter's going to stand with Jesus even unto death. He makes that statement after Jesus has said, I'm going away and you cannot come with me now. And of course, Peter wants to know why that is. He suspects it is loyalty that's the issue. But think about that. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be betrayed by one of them. He's going to go away and they can't follow. And now comes the final blow. All of them are going to forsake him. Not just one betrayer. All of those 
who are with him, I guess we would say, all those remaining ones who are with the Lord Jesus are going to forsake him. By the way, if you notice in the back of your uh, notes, you will see again the texts, uh, the parallel texts that have been set out so you can look at them comparatively. I confess that I snuck John's text because of space under uh, Matthew's column there on the first uh, page. But I think you, as you look at those texts comparatively, you will find that that may be some help to you. So our text is uh, relatively simple. It has two major paragraphs. The first paragraph is verses 26 through 31. And there Jesus foretells the failure of his disciples, the falling away of the eleven, and particularly, of necessity, Peter, because Peter is the one who is assuring Jesus that it won't include him. And so Peter is the one who becomes the focal point uh, of that conversation. The second paragraph is verses 32 through 42. And this is the paragraph of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, the paragraph which portrays the agony of our Lord Jesus. And I have to tell you, this is probably the most powerful passage in all the Gospel of Mark to me. I think it's a passage that we tend to slip by because we don't like to watch other people in agony. I've seen that uh, in the past in, in a hospital visitation. Uh, you will find that there are some people who, when they're in the, uh, visiting others in the hospital, they just can't wait to get out of there. They just kind of get away because they don't like to watch other people agonize. And Jesus never agonizes more than he does in our text. And I think there's a sense in which we just kind of want to move on and just let this text go and not think very seriously about it. But I think its implications are some of the most uh, profound in all of the scriptures. So it's, as I think at least, it's virtually impossible uh, for us to, to uh, overestimate the significance of this passage of scripture and of its implications for us in this day and in this time. Profound implications. If you saw me writing all the way through the worship hour, I have those notes somewhere, and I've got them scribbled in all over my PowerPoint, but they won't be on yours. Uh, I'll try to fix that. But the implications, the more you think about this text, the greater the implications, I think, become in our minds. Okay, the text, the first part of the text, all of you will fall away, verses 26 through 31. The meal has uh, been finished. The Passover meal has been observed, and now they are, are leaving. They have, uh, they're working their way uh, across the, uh, the Kidron and up the Mount of Olives, and somewhere on the Mount of Olives there is the Garden of Gethsemane, Uh, toward which they are heading. And it is in the context of that that Jesus makes this startling revelation to them when he says, all of you or you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Well, that statement obviously uh, caught them, uh, I think, 
in a shocking way, and, and it was not one they wanted to hear, certainly not one that Peter wanted to hear, but it was nevertheless true. By the way, this word uh, that is used for falling away is the word that is used in the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4, interestingly enough. They will be scandalized, we might say, and fall away. It is interesting when you look at Matthew's account over on the left-hand column, he adds two rather significant statements. One, this night you will all fall away. This night. Now, does that not add a level of intensity to what Jesus says in the garden when he says to them, you ought to watch with me? If there was ever a time for disciples to watch, and we will add and pray, this is the night. This night, he says, you will all fall away. And then he says, because of me. So now it becomes clear that the issue is something about Jesus, something about his ministry, something about his words, something about Jesus is the reason for their falling away. Not just any reason, but as Matthew puts it, because of Jesus. Now, the good news is, I guess partly, that Jesus makes it clear that this falling away is actually part of the sovereign plan of God. And he knows that because, among other things, it is prophesied in the Old Testament. So he goes back to Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. Now remember, this is the text where the, the, the book where in chapter 12 he says, they will look upon me whom they have um, struck, smitten. This is the text which then in the next chapter speaks of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah and of the wounds that will be inflicted upon him for the redemption of his people. And um, in that, it is said, I will strike, actually, it is more, uh, the eye is added pretty much, although it's the sense of the text, because it's saying from God's point of view, I'm going to smite the shepherd and the flock or the sheep will be scattered. So this is something which is prophesied. It is certain. It is, in a sense, a necessity because it has been prophesied. And in response to that, that's where Peter, again, predictably, foot to the mouth, begins to assure Jesus that he is not one of those who is going to fall away. And what's interesting is the word actually intensifies, so you've got the, the sense of falling away, and then Peter amps it up a bit and says, I will not betray you or deny you, I guess is the better word. I will not deny you, though all of the others do. And that's when Jesus says, using his words, okay, Peter, I have to tell you this, Three times you are going to deny me before the cock crows twice. So Jesus assures Peter of his threefold denial of him. Well, you have to ask the question, what, what does this text serve? What does it do? Why is it here? Well, among other things, it sets the stage for what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, does it not? If you read... Jesus' words to his disciples that they are going to fall away, 
then you would think, and especially if they're falling away that night because of him, you would think the disciples ought to be on the alert. Now, I'm sure that if they had a chance to relive this, Peter would have said to James and John, you see that rock over there? If you see me dozing off, hit me with it. I'm sure he would have said that after the fact. But the reality is it sets the stage and tells us how sad it is that the disciples are not watchful. And by the way, when you go back just a little further and you go back to Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse, what is the bottom line of what Jesus says to them there? Watch. Watch. And the word could be translated, stay awake or stay alert. There's ever any text that gives us the impetus in what staying alert looks like? This text is going to do it uh, for us. Okay, I know, I stole the term from uh, John Piper. But uh, future grace, John chapter 13, verse 19. This is another one of those texts, one of those statements of our Lord that is not understood at the moment. But as one looks at it from the rearview mirror point of view, you will recognize the significance of what Jesus has done. Jesus said there to his disciples, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. It's not for them to understand going forward. It's for them to understand looking backward. Jesus is dropping, as it were, crumbs along the trail so that they can recognize when they reach the destination. This was the foreordained path that our Lord had set before him and and for them. Now, strangely enough, there is encouragement in, in these words. I believe these words are meant to be encouraging. More after the fact, I grant you, than before, but if they were listening, there would have been encouragement even going forward. Now, I'm going to add this as the first point under encouragement because it's not in your notes and it's not in mine other than being handwritten. A, the disciples falling away is sin. If, if I haven't or I don't make that clear at other points, let's say it now. Their falling away is sin. It's a part of the foreordained plan of God, but it does not remove the culpability of the disciples for what they have done. God uses sin, but they are culpable for the sin that they will do. It's clear that this is not the example set for us to follow. It is their failure in the midst of strong encouragement and warning to the contrary. Okay, so Jesus and prophecy foretells their failure. Jesus is not shocked by man's failures. I know we are sometimes. We shouldn't be, but we are. Jesus is not shocked by the reality that men fail, even those closest to him. No shock. He tells them it's coming. In spite of their affirmations to the contrary, Jesus knows it's coming. And that ought to be encouraging to us. Their failure is a part of God's sovereign plan. 
Remember, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The reality is God is using this failure in the lives of his disciples to accomplish his purposes. As we get to our text next week, we'll begin to see how that comes about. But even the disciples' confusion and all that goes with that is a part of his plan because our Lord doesn't want his disciples to understand fully where he is going. It is part of that confusion that causes Peter to say, I've had it. You know, I gave him my best shot, pulled out my sword, wiped off an ear. What does he expect? And then he tells me to put it away. Frustration, because they don't understand, but it is part of the divine plan. I had to throw in Luke's unique unique contribution. And if you'll notice, just on your front page, just look at how much longer Luke's version is than either Matthew or Mark. So let me point out a couple of things there. One, in Luke's account, the focus is on Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have, oh, I love the uh, net Bible here. He has demanded to have you all. Okay, I know it's Southern, but you all means you, plural, right? I think we tend to read that, if, if we don't have that clue, we tend to read that and say, Peter, Satan wants you. Yeah, he does want him, but he wants all of them. And the reality is, Peter is a leader. When he says, I'm not going to deny you, they all say, Amen. He is a leader amongst them. I want, uh, Satan's uh, saying, I want all of them. I demand all of them. And then Jesus says, But I have prayed for you, Simon, when you, singular, have turned back. Strengthen your brothers. It's interesting that it's only Luke that really brings in the Satan element here. We know from John's account that Satan enters into Judas when when Jesus hands that sop to him and he takes it, partakes of it. Immediately Satan enters in and empowers him. But we probably are not as inclined to see Satan's role in all of this in in terms of Peter and the disciples. This is Satan's intent. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that this text is about hell. This text, better, more powerfully than any other text I know of in the New Testament, describes to us the horror of hell. And it's no wonder to me that Satan is going to be involved in trying to change the focus because if there's anything he doesn't want, it's for men to see the realities of hell. He always diminishes the consequences of sin. But hell is the consequence for sin. Satan is involved. He wants to have and sift all of them. (laughs) I like this. But I have prayed for you. Now, we know in the context of this, Jesus is going to say, you guys ought to be praying for yourselves. The reality is they weren't. And it's very important to come out of this saying, I ought to to be alert to the times and I ought to be watching and praying. But the prayer that saves us, my friend, is his. Our prayers are necessary, but he's saying, I'm not banking on your prayers. I prayed for you. That's the reason 
that he can say, when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. So there is a future for Peter. He not only says Peter is going to fall, he says that Peter is going to be restored and he is going to be restored in such a way that he is a leader and a strengthener of his brothers. In fact, I would suggest to you that Peter would never be able to strengthen his brothers in the way that he does. By the way, First Peter, that we're his brothers. First Peter is all about suffering, is it not? He's strengthening people who are suffering so they won't fall. It was his failure that was a part of God's equipping process. He can tell us about wrong responses to suffering, and he can tell us about God's grace in the midst of suffering. Peter will strengthen his brothers. Now, here's that little extra part that is not in the other Gospels. Do you notice this? When he when he picks up... And in verse 35, all the way to the end in the right-hand column uh, on on your uh, scripture page, he now goes off and he says, you remember when I sent you guys out? I sent you out without money and, and without all of these things. And you remember how I provided? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We remember. Jesus says things are going to change. Now you're going to have to take a money bag <laughs> and an effect. This is one that wasn't too hard for the disciples. And pack a 45, too. A sword. Pack a sword. And the disciples, oh, yeah, yeah. We're, hey, look, we got two already. Packing two weapons with them. And, and, and so Jesus is saying this. Things have dramatically changed, or maybe more accurately, things will dramatically change when I am executed as a criminal you will be pursued as criminals. This is not like when I sent you out in the first pass and you went about announcing the kingdom of God is here and you were healing and raising the dead. Everybody wanted you, almost. People wanted you there in their town. They were happy to put you up in their houses. Now, my friends, you're criminals. It's a different thing. Don't plan on them putting you up at Motel 6 or anywhere else. You better look out and make provision for yourselves because you are now enemies and criminals in their sight. Well, anyway, I find it a chuckle when when, uh, these guys drag out two swords. I know who had one of them. I, I would guess that James or John had the other. That would be my guess. And who knows what they did. And, and the whole point of it is not that you ought to go out armed. He's saying you ought to go out with a mentality that you are pursued. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Lord. Hey, we, we're packing right now. We got it. Man. And, and I think Jesus just passes it up. And he really could have laid into him for that. He just passes it up. They don't get the point. But then they weren't meant to. And notice that in Luke's account, he quotes from Isaiah 53, and he was accounted as counted with transgressors. He's saying, it's another fulfillment of Scripture. I am to be perceived as a criminal. You are my followers. You're going to be perceived in the same way. So brace up, as it were. That's the way it's going to be. And then Jesus speaks of his resurrection and his meeting with them in Galilee. And, and I, I just see that as, as saying, guys, 
it's looking really gloomy. And you know what the disciples were like after the crucifixion of our Lord, before they were convinced of his resurrection. They thought it was over. But what Jesus is saying is, in spite of all the things that you are going to do, in all the ways you're going to failure, fail, that fulfills scripture, but there is a future for you. I'm meeting you in Galilee. So there is encouragement. And I think in particular, as the disciples look back and they remember what Jesus has said, that's a great encouragement. This was a part of his plan for them. And while they are going to forsake him, he will never forsake them. That's, that's the message I get in this from our Lord. Now the Garden of Gethsemane in verses 32 through 42. Boy, there's a lot that could be said about this. It is a text that we are familiar with, I hope, and uh, therefore our familiarity may work for us or against us, but I've chosen to uh, highlight a few things and then to lean on some uh, areas of application. The first point is he went with his disciples to Gethsemane as usual uh, uh, in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, as was customary. The Garden of Gethsemane was obviously a familiar place. It was, I think, a camping place. Perhaps Jesus knew the owner of the property, whatever, but it was a place where pilgrims could go and spend the night. There weren't that many accommodations, especially during Passover, So it was a place that he frequented. John, by the way, chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, makes it clear to us that it was such a familiar place, Judas knew exactly where to find Jesus. That, I think, will be important as time goes on. I am a bit puzzled uh, at the difference that Jesus makes between the 3 and the the 8. And that is, he leaves the eight disciples apparently further off and then brings the three disciples, I'm guessing, within sight and sound of him. And uh, he gives them uh, their commission. Uh, By the way, the emphasis on three, don't you you just kind of see that? Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then he is going to wake up the disciples three times, rebuke the disciples three times, tell them to pray and watch three times. No wonder we find in John 21, Jesus saying to Peter three times, do you love me? The repetition doesn't speak well for them, but it certainly is is here in the text. Another thing I notice is what I would call the progression of Jesus' instruction. Now, there are some of the accounts that, that sort of lump it all together, like you find in, in Luke's account, where Jesus just tells them to, to watch and pray. But if you look at the more particular accounts, then you will discover that when Jesus uh, has his disciples uh, stationed there, he says to them in, in uh, Mark fourteen thirty two. Sit here while I pray. Now, that's a fairly different thing than saying sit here and pray, is it not? Sit here while I pray. It's as though they were meant in that first pass to watch Jesus pray. 
It's not until Jesus comes back the second time and then he says, could you not stay awake one hour? That that tells me, I, I would guess, that these are one hour I- intervals, would you not? In other words, Jesus hasn't said, watch and pray with me all night. I know there are some cultures where, where they actually do all night prayer vigils. And the problem with those is that when those people go to class the next morning, they sleep through it. And, 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 uh, they're gonna, they're gonna get that sleep somewhere. And, and, and those who teach in those environments say it's not really fun teaching a whole class of sleepers because of what they were doing the night before. Jesus is only asking for an hour at a time. He's only asking for an hour. They fail to watch with him, uh, for that, uh, for that hour. And and then finally, the last time, he doesn't really uh, admonish anything. He comes, finds them asleep, and says, "You know, the second the second time he comes to them to rebuke, all it says is they didn't know what to say. What would you say? What would you say to Jesus at that point? Nothing. So the third time he comes and basically says, "Okay, guys, let's go meet the betrayer," and that's the way it ends. But he does say, stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. That comes after their initial failure to stay awake. Now they are to stay awake and pray. And you can see how that would be in light of what Jesus has already said in the preceding paragraph about them falling away. Now, I call attention to the progression of, of Jesus' prayer in Matthew. I, I think it's, it's at least clear to me when you look over at Matthew's account, when you see the first reference of our Lord, uh, in, in his prayer, he says, uh, in verse 39, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The other accounts kind of lumped them together and they'll say, and Jesus went off the second time and prayed the same thing. Well, in essence, he did. But in Matthew's account, when you come to the second uh, uh, prayer of our Lord Jesus, when he goes for the second time, verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will must be done. Do do you, I, I guess what I'm saying is, do you not see a progression in our Lord uh, in the sense of acceptance. It, it, those of us who are parents have seen this many times, but you tell your kids no, and they come back and they ask the same question, right? You tell them no again, come back, ask the same question. He's like, don't look at me, Taylor. <laughs> Taylor's saying, I don't do that. Oh, yes, you did. Anyway. That's a granddaughter. But, hey, we have a way of just pressing the same thing. What you see with Jesus is that he says to the Father, if you would, would you take this away? He knows the answer is no. The next time he says, since you can't take it away, then help me. So I see Jesus progressing in this. And although we don't have the wording of the third prayer, it seems to me that Jesus is moving away from the take it away and and it's be with me because it isn't going to be taken away. 
That's the progression I see from, from Matthew. I see also the immensity of the disciples' failure in this. I, I, I cannot... How, how do you... I, I remember a story about Abraham Lincoln one time. And he was at a, some social function. And, and he was remarking that in the context of the function, people didn't listen to what you were saying. And so he's shaking hands with everybody going through this social function. And he says to them, I just shot my mother-in-law. I just shot my mother-in-law. And all oh, fine, fine. And everybody walks out. Nobody heard it. Nobody heard it. Because they're, they're off in whatever land they are, but they're not listening to what's going on. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He says to his disciples, I am in great agony, even unto death. Folks, that is incredible. This is the Jesus who is unflappable. In a boat, the middle of a stormy sea, sailors are scared out of their wits, and they say to Jesus, don't you care? Yeah, I know he doesn't say be cool, but you see, Jesus totally in control. He's not ruffled by that. Two demoniacs come racing down to meet his boat at the shore. He's unflappable. 5,000 men need to be saved, uh, fed, no problem. Never, never do you see Jesus, in a sense, coming unraveled by any set of circumstances. But you look at this one, folks. You look at this one and you hear Jesus say, my soul is in agony to the point of death. There is no greater way of saying, this is hell. Is it not? And and and, and then you see Jesus throwing himself on the ground. And I'm going to toss out all the, the, the uh, scholarly... Uh, footnotes on on Luke's account and Jesus is sweating as it were great drops of blood now maybe the eight were far enough away they didn't see it the three had they been awake would have and should have seen it but do you see how the disciples are off they're sawn logs while Jesus is in the worst possible moment of his life up to that point and, and, and it's like they don't even realize it. It doesn't even register what's going on. The failure of the disciples. It's amazing. The immensity of our Lord's agony. I do not think that we can overstate the degree to which our Lord suffered and agonized at that moment in time. And remember, he does so as God. Jesus is not worrying about the future in the sense that we do. He is not exaggerating possibilities. He is not working out of ignorance. He knows precisely what the future holds. What he agonizes over is exactly what he will experience. That's the horror of this moment. He knows. When you uh, come to that last uh, statement on your notes on that frame, Jesus requests that his cup might pass from him. It's very interesting to me 
that, that a lot of folks spend time agonizing about how could he do that? How could Jesus ask the Father to take away something that is his sovereign will? I'd like to phrase it a little differently. How could Jesus, knowing absolutely and fully and completely the hell that awaited him, why would he not ask? Think of the one who is perfect, who has never known sin. Now, there's a certain agony in being plopped onto this earth and in being rubbing shoulders with, with, with a bunch of uh, cruddy guys like the disciples. In other words, having to live amongst sinners, that's agony. It would be agony for God, and it was. But think about being the one on whom all of the sin of the world is placed, the filth that is on him. And so the scripture says, it not only that he lived amongst sin, but he became sin for us. Can you imagine one who is perfect and abhors sin of doing that? Now, because he is God and he is righteous and he understands how abominable sin is, he also understands how great the wrath of God towards sin must be. And we sit here and say, how could he possibly ask? How could he possibly not? This is the most horrifying possibility that ever existed. And that's why I say there is a certain terror in our Lord because this thing is everything he isn't in one sense. And that, I think, is what we are meant to gain in part from the text. Okay. I'll move to the conclusion and lean on a couple of things. This is going to sound like a strange story to you, but I think it's uh, relevant. Years ago, I uh, went with some friends to the River of No Return wilderness in the state of Idaho. It took us eight hours after a long journey up into the mountains by uh, Jeep. It took us eight hours on horseback to get up to where we finally would end up. No motor vehicles, whatever. And uh, we would ride on these uh, mountain switchbacks, uh, looking down... (laughs) seeing how far it was down below. On the long ride back, I was sitting up close to the uh, guide, and I said to him, you ever see any lions? Now, now, where I come from, we call them cougars, but but they call them lions, mountain lions. And, and so I said, do you ever see any lions when you're on the trail? The guy says, no, never do. But my mules do. He said, so... I watch my mules, and I know when they know, (laughs) I know there's a lion ahead. Well, the interesting thing about that trip is we're driving home back on the road, and here's a mountain lion laying in the middle of the road, sunning himself. (laughs) So much for never seeing one, but that's another story. But the point is, if that man is wise, he will watch his mules because they know more than he does. Do you not see that from this text? 
Jesus knows infinitely more about hell and about the righteousness of God and the wages of sin than any of us do. If Jesus responds to the degree of horror that he does in our text, and that's unmistakable, what should that say to us? What should that say to us about hell and its consequences? Now, I've got a bunch of stuff spread all over this, and I don't know exactly how I'll get it all worked in, but some of this won't be on your sheet, but I think it's important. In this text, we see the magnitude of Christ's suffering, of his submission, and his sacrifice. Do we not? If this is how much horror the future holds for Jesus in going to the cross, then this is the text that more than anything else describes the horrors of hell. I know we've got Luke 16 and we've got other passages. Nothing, nothing approximates that response of our Lord Jesus to the hell that he will face in the place of sinners. It's the most emphatic, dramatic picture of hell And the essence of hell is separation from God. That is what he dreads more than anything. A Friday morning group, I think it was Tom who said, think about John 13 through 17 when he's talking about unity in terms of the believer's unity with him. But behind all of that, maybe I would say beyond all of that, is the unity of the Son with the Father. Is that not right? Jesus says, I don't say anything but what the Father gives me to say. I don't do anything but what the Father gives me to do. Everything, Jesus and the Father are like that. But what Jesus anticipates is when he and the Father are like that. And in a sense, the disciples' ignorance and whatever separation from him in in identifying with what he's going through is nothing compared to the separation between Jesus, the Son of God, and the holy, righteous Father who is pouring out his wrath, and that is separation from him. What incredible horror. Well, that ought to be a message for unbelievers, should it not? If this is Jesus' view of hell, I'd go with his view. I wouldn't read Rob Bell or some of those other guys. I'd read Jesus on this point. And I'd say, this is what hell is like. And my friend, Jesus bore your hell for you and me. But if you reject his sacrifice, then the only experience you can expect is the hell he experienced. And if you look at this text you'll say, that's a place I never want to go. A frightening, frightening text. By the way, when we minimize the hell that Jesus experienced, it's a nice, neat way of minimizing our sin, is it not? If we're going to minimize the consequence for sin, then the end result is we're minimizing the depth of our sin and the consequence it merits. So it's a convenient thing for me, certainly for Satan, to say, well, hell is not really as bad as we, you know, and you kind of water it down to some kind of tolerable hell. It isn't. It isn't. 
unbelievers better look to this text. The worship of the saints. I wrote this down. To downgrade the horror of hell is to diminish the magnitude of his grace as displayed in his suffering for us. Think about that. If we downgrade hell, then we've downgraded the work of Christ because the work of Christ was to bear hell for us. Now that ought to say all kinds of things to us about our worship, should it not? We ought to be looking and reminding ourselves, why do you suppose we have these elements before us every Sunday? Because it's to remind us, A, the bread is his perfection. And the cup is to remind us of what he endured as the perfect lamb, what he endured for us. So it's the center of our worship. If we minimize the magnitude of hell and the magnitude of Christ's work, then we minimize our worship because we are not worshiping him for all that he is and has done. No wonder we worship him for all eternity because he experienced an eternity of wrath for us who are believers in him. I call this a warning to sinning saints. Remember when Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All of us uh, struggle with sin. But the scariest thing of all is for somebody as a believer to say, I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But I'm going to keep doing it. Do you understand what you're saying about Christ's work? What you're saying is, in effect, let's just pile one more piece on our Lord Jesus Christ. It is degrading the magnitude of his saving work. That is a frightening thought. And so not only is hell a scary thing for an unbeliever, the judgment of God, a holy, righteous God who takes sin this seriously, he takes my sin that seriously. No wonder he doesn't let it pass. This text is a warning to those who would downgrade hell. I'm speaking specifically Rob Bell at this moment, but it's very interesting that there are a number of people who are evangelical or have been regarded as evangelical scholars who have somehow come to the point, well, maybe hell isn't really eternal. And, and, and there's been just kind of a downgrading of hell to where now it's, it, it's kind of more socially acceptable. And I want to say, we better stay with Jesus' view of hell And we better let this be the definition of how serious a subject this is and how serious the wrath of God is. It is serious stuff. To downgrade the doctrine of hell is to downgrade the person and the work of our Lord Jesus and his Father. All right. It's the ultimate example of submission, isn't it? Philippians 2 is not talking about Jesus' submission to us He seeks our good, but his submission is to the Father. Do you want to know what submission looks like? Look there. Look at the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. Folks, our submission will never match it. But that is what submission looks like. An exhortation to pray.
Well, that's what they were supposed to do. They were to watch and to pray. And it was their failure to pray that led to their future failures, not far away, in their falling away from the Lord Jesus. Watching means praying. It's part of, pray- it's part of the watching process. Finally, the greatest comfort in all the world to a Christian is the words we find in Hebrews, cited from the Old Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. My friends, God may call us to suffer. He may call us to suffer greatly, but we will never suffer like Jesus did. We will never suffer like Jesus did because he suffered the separation of the Father. Any suffering we have is suffering where he is with us. In fact, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that the entering into those sufferings is greater intimacy and knowledge of him. Our sufferings bring us to him. They don't drive a wedge between him and us. What a great comfort for believers. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the immensity of his sacrifice, for this revelation of the horror of hell. Father, if there is anyone here who is unsaved, who has never acknowledged their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus as the one who bore their penalty, may they see the magnitude of their sin, the magnitude of your grace, and may they receive it by simple faith in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.